In this evening's session, I'm going to try to combine 9 and 10. We've gotten behind schedule. That's the story of my life. I never, never stayed on schedule all the years I was teaching. I always had too much stuff I wanted to cover. So what I'm going to try to do is to compress session 9 and session 10 and try to cover both of those in the time that uh, we have allotted for us tonight. I uh, once again want to start by setting a tone reading from Scripture. And if you would follow along, I would like to have you turn, first of all, to Genesis chapter 7. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Genesis 7. We're going to read selected verses there. First from Genesis 7 and also from Genesis 8. Genesis 7 beginning at verse 4. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, on the seventeenth day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. And then skip ahead to verse 17. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than twenty feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. And then turn ahead to chapter 8, and I'll read just verses 13 and 14 of Genesis 8, 13 and 14. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And then I want to have you turn ahead to John chapter 8. 
John chapter 8, and we're going to just look at a couple of verses there, 31 and 32, and then 44 and 45. And we have there in John chapter 8 a discussion about Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, the truth will set us free. And then Jesus responds to the Jews who would not believe him. John 8, 31 and 32. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But then drop down to Jesus' very sharp rebuke to those who would not believe in verse 44 and 45. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then last of all, I want you to turn to John's first epistle way at the end of the Bible John has the epistle there and the first epistle the fourth chapter he begins this way dear friends do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You may want to keep your Bibles handy because I will be making some references uh, throughout the course of the evening. What I want to do tonight is not so much argue the case for creationism and the case against evolution. That, I think, will come out, though, in the discussion. What I want to do is to begin with the emphasis of lesson number nine, how should we teach discernment? What we are talking about here in these scripture passages, what we've been talking about the last couple of days, is the need to teach our children how to discern between truth and falsehood. I had told you earlier this week that truth is defined as the Word of God. And Jesus says, I am the Word. I am the truth. So we have the truth incarnate in Jesus Christ. I have also made the contention that falsehood is a distortion of truth. It's simply a turning away, twisting or distorting very slightly from what God's Word tells us and leading us away from God. That's what falsehood is. Sometimes it's very, very clever. Now, the question that we have to ask is how can we teach that to our children. How can we equip them as they're growing up 
so that when they confront the ideas of evolution, whether that be naturalistic, atheistic evolution, or whether that be theistic evolution, whichever one, and I'm opposed to both of them, I'll tell you right up front, how can we equip them so that our children, these kids right here, can get to the point where they can stand up and confront the evolutionary argument and win the argument, not be sucked in by it. Let me simply begin by describing for you a process which I am told the FBI sends all of its agents through. The FBI is responsible for dealing with counterfeit money. And every agent is trained to be able to recognize counterfeit. So that if you try to pass off a piece of counterfeit money to an FBI agent, he's going to take a look at it and say, uh uh, excuse me, here's my badge, follow me, folks, uh, you got a problem. And the way the FBI does that is that they will take the various denominations, single dollar, five, a ten, twenty, a fifty, a hundred, a thousand, all the different denominations that might be counterfeited, and they will force their agents to study these so intensively and so frequently and so repeatedly that they know every little nuance, every little twist and turn of the, the dollar. And they just keep forcing them. You study the dollar bill for a day. Then you study the $5 bill for a day. Then you study the $10 for And you go back and back and it just keep ingraining into you the true money so that once that has happened, somebody gives you a counterfeit and you immediately notice the difference. Aha! Andrew Jackson's hair isn't quite that far down. This is counterfeit. Or Thomas Jefferson's nose isn't quite that. Very little differences. They can pick up and immediately spot. Now, what does that have to do? I'm not giving out money here. What does that have to do with equipping our children? Faith? You teach them the truth and emphasize teaching them the truth so that, that when they hear something false, they'll recognize it. We don't have to train them of every example of every false thing because there are so many that could come. But if they know the truth, then they'll recognize Amen, sister. Do you hear that? The first and most important thing we have to do is to train and instill the truth in our children so persistently, so repeatedly, so precisely that when a falsehood, when a distortion comes their way, they will immediately recognize it as a falsehood. That's essentially what I'm suggesting to you. So, now you ask, and I ask, at what age should this skill begin? When do you start teaching discernment to your children? Do you wait until they're in the 8th grade? 
No. Do you wait until they're high school or college? No. If you waited that long, you've missed the mark. You start teaching this skill already as soon as they're old enough to listen to Bible stories. As soon as you can take them on your lap and you start telling them stories, giving them Bible stories, you are equipping them to confront distortions of the truth when they get older. Let me once again suggest a place where this becomes very apparent. Psalm 78 has some advice for us in verse 4. I had said earlier this week that Psalm 78 is one of those chapters that has been very meaningful to me as I try to support and encourage and promote Christian schools. Notice what God is saying there through the psalmist. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden from of old, things we have heard and known, things our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation what? The praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders He has done. About three years ago, a little more than three years ago, I heard a sermon preached on this very passage. And I want to just briefly share its, its contents with you. The, the pastor was saying, this was not in an OPC church. Don't have to go out looking for a... The pastor was saying that we have to tell our children the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, the power and the wonders that he has done. And he said, I want to try to give you an example of what this means. I'll, and he proceeded to tell the congregation about a baseball game that he had gone to with his son. It was a game of the Toronto Blue Jays. This was a Canadian pastor. And he tried to describe that game in some detail, and he said they had the best right fielder in both leagues, and this right fielder had such a fabulous arm that it got down to the ninth inning, and the Blue Jays were leading, but the other team was threatening, and some batter hit a ball to the far outfield, and this right fielder cut it off, and threw to home plate a bullet all the way to home plate and he nailed the runner who was trying to score from first base he nailed him and the ump called him out and the game was over and he says the place just went ecstatic now that is a case of awesome power think of what it took to heave, you know, heave that ball that is just really what the psalmist is talking about and I, I excuse me sir I, I wanted to jump up and did you read the text? Are you serious? That's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's saying, tell your children the marvelous deeds of the Lord. 
Tell them about creation. Tell them about the flood. Tell them about the ten plagues, the way God released his people from Egypt. Tell them about the crossing of the Red Sea. Tell them about the crossing of the Jordan River. Let's go for just a minute to that crossing of the Jordan River. Joshua chapter 3. If that story doesn't impress you, you're not, you're not wide awake. Joshua 3. Here's one of those awesome demonstrations of the Lord's work. And I want to just pick up the story there starting at verse 10 and reading through verse 17. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, the water flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the ark of the covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And then jump ahead quickly into chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. It tells you in the meantime they're all about the crossing of all of these approximately two million people who are crossing on dry ground. And verse 17 tells us, So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. Anybody ever see a wall of water standing on edge? And it just stands there. I want to, should I try it? See if I can make water stand up? There's no way in the world. That, that goes against all the laws of nature. And yet God says, that's one of my demonstrations of my power. And the book is full of these things. Teach your children 
how awesome that God is. That God can do things that you can't begin to imagine. And you go all through the Old Testament and there is miracle after miracle after miracle. You get into the New Testament and there is miracle after miracle after miracle. God takes a great big jug of water and he says, be wine. And every chemist knows <laughs> that no way in the world can a jug of water turn into wine like that. But God can make it happen. I think what the psalmist is saying to us, what I'm trying to get across to you, is that the best way to equip your children to withstand all of these darts of the enemy, all of these falsehoods, is to steep them in the truth of God's word. And work at it. So you begin this early in their childhood. You don't wait. One of the things that the scientific community has an extreme amount of difficulty with is miracles. The ones who argue for evolution, the ones who argue against creation, can't stomach the idea of something that they can't explain. And what they eventually have to do is to reject and wash out all of the miracles of the Bible. Logically, they have to get to that point. Throw the miracles out. And God says, I have given you so much of that in my word. That's the first thing you have to do. Steal and steep your children in the truth of God's word. And then when heresies, when strange ideas come, then they'll be able to recognize. Let me tell you just one story which is in God's wedding band. And some of you may have read it. It may be old hat to you now. We went off to University of Iowa in 1970. I wanted to finish my doctorate. We didn't have Christian school there in the community. There were Catholic schools and there were public schools. And we had to make a choice. Well, we were living on a low income, so we put our kids into the public school. Three children. The youngest one had a nice woman teacher who was a member of a church who had Christian values and did a great job of teaching our little daughter. The second one had a good teacher who was, again, very sympathetic to Christianity and did a good job of teaching good values to our, our second son. Our oldest son had take course in geography and the teacher never got around to geography. Just every day used his geography class as another opportunity to teach evolutionary theory. And our son had been schooled enough by us to know that there was something wrong there so he would come home and say dad you know what we did today we no. first inclination is you don't want to fight but it comes the next day the next day and finally say well I'll go talk to the teacher so I try to talk to the teacher and there's no way he's going to change he is 
so committed. He has this higher agenda. He's going to pump evolutionary theory into that class every day. So I said, well, I can't get anywhere with you. I'll go to the principal. And the principal was one of these wishy-washy, you know, I wouldn't ever disagree with my teachers, uh, and they're nice people, and uh, don't bother me, and so fine. All right. Can't get anywhere that way either. Went home that night. You know, Greg, what did you learn today? Well, we learned this. Tomorrow, when you go back, why don't you ask them this? So, the next day he goes back and he asks the question. And uh, the teacher doesn't have a good answer. He's stumped. But he keeps load, unloading. So, he comes home again. Well, today he gave us this line of... So, why don't you ask him these questions? Within one week, the teacher quit and started working on geography. Uh, good fundamental questions that have to be asked and you begin to say, all right, I'm sorry, I'm beat, I can't win this war, I'll go off. Now, that worked well in our situation. And because of the discussions we had at supper table, Greg was eighth grade at the time, Brian was fourth, Amy was first, I think, at about that stage in their lives. All of our children, all three of our children, became very, very committed to creationism. And they learned how to ask questions of an evolutionist so that they could quickly embarrass an evolutionist. And I think that is very good strategy. Let me suggest a couple of things on the overhead that may help us do some of that. And this is not going to be exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. I'll start out with something that's very simple and uh, pretty easy to deal with. Can you read that? Hang on. Notice this comes out of the Detroit News, July 29, 1986, a major Midwestern newspaper. This is a cartoon. Obviously, the newspaper thinks it's being funny. Uh, kids see that stuff, and uh, you, you begin to realize pretty quickly this is rather crass, uh, uncivilized kind of debate. This is just uh, you know attacking people, and uh, that's easy enough to recognize. But This gets a little bit more complex. One of the things that you have working here is a way to truth. Those who come with the propositions of evolution, those who come pushing the evolutionary agenda, have some presuppositions that they are not necessarily going to tell you about they have some basic ideas about the nature of truth. 
they have already rejected the idea that I had expressed to you on this transparency. They've already said, no, we will not accept Jesus Christ as the truth. We won't accept God's word as truth. That is something that's simply out of the question. Truth is something that you arrive at by argumentation, by rational argument, by dealing with ideas, you gradually come to know the truth. And what they're doing, they are buying into Hegelian system. Hegel said that the way you get to truth is to start out with one proposition, which we call a thesis, and then you put over against that its opposite, its anti thesis, and you argue and discuss and debate between those two viewpoints, and what you do then is to synthesize, you bring the best out of both of those positions, you bring them together, and you call that a synthesis. That's how you get truth, and that's what we want. We want to learn what is the truth. see what they're doing? Now, the thesis is creation. The anti-thesis is naturalistic evolution. Darwinian kind of evolution where God is completely wiped out, completely obliterated. And they are saying, what we have to do is to take these alternative positions and wrestle with the questions and then we will come to the best of both worlds and we will have theistic. We want to keep God in there. The evolutionists that you and I confront are usually insisting they are not naturalistic evolutionists. Not at all. They are theistic evolutionists. That's the kind of enemy that we're encountering. But now take the system that I gave you that take that Ventilian idea of presuppositions and assumptions and apply that here. Who is their basic authority? What is the basic authority on which you are building your system? It's not God. That is a very important question I think you have to ask any time you are in, engaged or locked in debate. Who is your authority? Where do you go for your foundational answers? And what these people are doing is saying, well, I really don't want to make Darwin my final authority, but they're going back to Hegel and say, this is the way to truth. They've rejected God's word. God's word is not the way. We'll do it through research, through analysis, and finally through synthesis. Now, what I want to do I want to 
walk you through a reading exercise. You're going to get to that point where you're going to have to address the idea of evolution in a very straightforward kind of fashion. Let me just say that when I was growing up, I had a teacher in the seventh and eighth grade who made us read Darwin's The Origin of Species. I mentioned in the book my father was kind of nonplussed at that at first. But it was simply an attempt on this teacher's part to make us read the material and to analyze it and critique it in such a way that we saw the fallacies of it. And I want to do this. This will take a couple of minutes' time, but I think it will show a couple of things that are worth looking at. So, this is a book on geology. If you've read God's Wedding Band and if you've read the appendix there toward the back, most people don't get around to the appendices. And I have a couple of appendices. But there are some... That was supposed to be funny. It's all in the delivery. It's in the delivery. It's right. I just didn't deliver that line well. But in the appendices, I was arguing with a geologist who insisted that I didn't know what I was talking about. And he insisted that I had to read this book by Shelton. This was, ten years ago, the leading college geology text on the market. So I got a copy of the book and read it. And here are some of the things I read. The result was an enormous five-pronged Pleistocene lake centered near Missoula, Montana, which filled Bitterroot, Blackfoot, Flathead, and numerous other valleys. Shorelines, beach deposits, and deltas show that its surface was about 4,150 feet above sea level, 1,000 feet above Missoula, and 2,000 feet above Spokane. This great body of water, glacial Lake Missoula, had a total area of about 2,990 square miles, a maximum depth of 2,000 feet, and an estimated volume of over 500 cubic miles, held in by ice at the west and north and by mountains on the east and the south. Ice dams are not permanent. The breakup of this one left abundant evidence of the flood it released at various places along the Clark Fork in western Montana, leading to the outlet of glacial Lake Missoula, there are gravel bars bearing giant ripples up to 50 feet high and as much as 500 feet from crest to crest. Where the flow was constricted by narrows, the steep valley walls are swept conspicuously clean up to more than 1,000 feet above the valley floor. These gravel bars and clean valley walls are taken as evidence that the lake emptied suddenly when the ice dam gave way. Calculations suggest that the discharge may have reached a maximum of over nine cubic miles per hour, 1,900 times the average flow of the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, 
and well over 100 times flood stage on the lower Mississippi. Such a discharge probably lasted only a few days. At half, the estimated maximum discharge, the available water would have drained out in three days. The flood would have stopped almost as abruptly as it started. You probably wonder where I'm going with this, but I think you'll see in a minute. Geology was not a science until the legendary Noachian flood and six-day creation were replaced by explanations derived from careful study of rocks. The doctrine that past events should be explainable through no more than reasonable extensions of observable processes has played a vital role in substituting the plausible for the preposterous and the feasible for the fanciful in geology. Notice page 351. The previous page was also top of 351. Do you hear what he's saying? There was no flood. One of the things that evolutionists almost universally do is reject the biblical account of the flood. Genesis 1 through 11 is myth. We're not going to argue now about Genesis 1 and 2. Let's look at Genesis 6, 7, 8. That is impossible. That is preposterous. That is fanciful nonsense. You can't believe in a flood. But these guys create their own. Now, and the, and the flood, go on. I don't know, have you flown over the Great Basin? You look at the Great Basin. We flew from Salt Lake City to L.A. and a great part of the Great Basin there was, we were up at 30,000 feet. You look, and you can see these features. They're there. And you look at the pictures in the geology book and say, yep, that's, they're there all over the place. So they have some data that they're looking at which you can't deny. But their explanation, even in today's most arid part of the Great Basin, there is widespread evidence, not only of former lakes, but also of connecting rivers. The view in figure 337 shows parts of one of the many gorges cut by such rivers in the southern part of the Great Basin. Only a powerful stream working rather rapidly could produce such steep walls. Yet these canyons are now either dry or contain only an intermittent trickle. The fact that shoreline features are rather well preserved throughout the Great Basin, even when developed on loose sand and gravel, has led all who have studied them to conclude that they are geologically quite recent. Quite recent. But the likely hypothesis that they are in some way connected with the Pleistocene Ice Age is more difficult to prove and refine than one might think. Said, so, oh, there is all kinds of evidence out there that there was a massive flood less than 10,000 years ago. Of course, 
not that flood that God is talking about. Them. This was a flood caused by the Ice Age. This was a flood caused by glaciers. All of the mountains were formed by glaciers. Now, what kind of questions do you want to ask this character? We couldn't possibly get enough water to have a Noahican flood. You, you ruled that out. But now you have gotten enough water to cover all of the mountains and to form the mountains, and not only did you get enough water up there, but you froze it as well. What would it take to freeze all of that water? What would you have to do to your universe for... You'd have to turn the sun off for... And what would you have to do to melt it? Now turn the sun back on for a while. Or, or somehow... But not No, no. <laughs> and now you've got these big ice dams that are holding all these waters, these big humongous lakes, you know, reaching way... And you're holding it there until the ice dam breaks. And now you suddenly get your own flood. You've made your own. Are you guys serious? What I'm suggesting to you is that evolutionary theory, and I'm going to be very blunt, and if somebody doesn't like it, throw me out the door, I won't be back next year. <laughs> evolutionary theory is nonsense. It's scientific, philosophical, evidential nonsense. It doesn't hold up to any kind of careful scrutiny. That's what that teacher convinced me of a long time ago back in the 7th and 8th grade. Uh, this is a little bit more advanced stuff. This is the kind of thing you can encounter at high school level, college level. But simply taking their basic literature and asking questions of it. They contend that all of the mountains, all of the lakes, all of the rivers, etc., were formed by glaciers. Well, and the last one, they're very emphatic, the last one left Chicago less than 10,000 years ago. And where Chicago now stands was covered by 10,000 feet of ice. And they have all kinds of evidence for it because 300 feet down below Chicago, you can dig there in the rock quarries and you can find all kinds of fossils. See, and that proves it. That proves what? Because I find glacier appearances in Banff, that means that the whole northern hemisphere was covered with glaciers? That's not logical. Because I find fossils 300 feet down below the ground level in rock quarries in the Chicago area, and I find there fossils of fish and seashells and all that, and I have a number of them that I love to <coughs> show around. Is that explanation for an ice age? If I simply take a globe and I wish I had a globe with me and say, all right, you argue that the glaciers formed the mountains. They carved out all the lakes. 
and you also tell me that the glaciers extended all the way down to the central part of California and they cut across at about the Mason-Dixon line. That's as far down as the glaciers came. They never got any further than that. Well, then how do you explain the mountains in New Mexico? How do you explain the Andes? How do you explain the mountains in Africa? Oh, uh, never thought of that. We didn't get that far yet. This is what I mean. What you need to do is to be wiser than them and simply ask questions that will prove that this whole theory is nonsense. It's a substitute for the Word of God. Now, what's, what's tragic is that a lot of people in the church over the last decades have gotten sucked into that. And I'm fearful for our children that our children don't get sucked into that. So I think we have to do a very careful kind of preparing of our kids. Now, let me go back to where you've got to go back and you've got to start and you've got to emphasize teaching them the truth of God's Word. None of us, myself included, are adequately steeped in that Word. Know it well enough so that we can resist every threat that comes from the devil. I'll tell you just one more illustration of that. About five years ago, we were having a debate amongst the Trinity faculty about evolution, creation. I was one of the senior members of the faculty and uh, not inclined to be a wallflower, so I was right smack in the middle of the discussion. And at one point, uh, in a faculty meeting, I said, well, look, one of the reasons I believe that the earth is very young is because of the genealogies that we find in the Bible. And one of the Bible department faculty members immediately jumped all over me and said, haven't you noticed that there are all kinds of gaps in there? And haven't you noticed that those genealogies don't agree at all? I'm sorry. I, I guess I wasn't, you know, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, so I sort of humbled myself and backed out of the argument and said, you know, I, I guess I'm just not as well versed in the scripture as I ought to be. But that kept bothering me. Since then, I have gone back and I've looked at those genealogies. And I take Genesis 5, and I did a little bit of this in God's wedding band, not nearly enough. I take Genesis 5, and then I take Genesis 11, and I say that, okay, here we go from Adam up to the time of the flood, and then we go from the time of the flood with Noah up to the time of Abraham, and then I go over to Matthew chapter 1, and I go to Luke chapter 3, and I find that they're exactly the same. They mesh well. And I sort of left it at that. But that's not the whole story. I have to also take a look at First Chronicles. Because God gives us those genealogies, not just in Genesis 5, not just in Genesis 11, but he gives them all to us again in First Chronicles 1, 2, and 3. And there they are. 
and you lay them alongside of each other and they match up perfectly. And you go to the fourth chapter of the story about Ruth and there again you have the genealogies, at least a partial listing. And now all of those, and if you trace them all the way through from Adam up through David, there isn't a single difference. They match up perfectly. Now, if you take the Septuagint version of the New Testament and contrast that with the old Masoretic text of the Old Testament, you will find that there's one distinction which I cite there of Canaan. It's found in the Septuagint version, but it's not found in the others. Minor textual problem. Now, you are not only arguing against Genesis 1 through 11. If you say those genealogies are not accurate, that they are not correct, now you have to reject Genesis 5, Genesis 11, 1 Chronicles 1, 2, and 3, Ruth chapter 4, Matthew 1, and Luke 3. Now you're attacking big portions of the scripture. It's not just a matter of putting Genesis 1 through 11 in a category of myth. When you study the word day and you go through, and, and I'm very sorry that in God's wedding band I wasn't able at that time to take as strong a stand as I am today. If I rewrite that book today, I would make a much, much stronger case about the day in Genesis being a day as you and I know it, a 24-hour day. God's fourth commandment, so explicit and so powerfully stated there, is based on the creation model. It said, you must worship me on the Sabbath day because this is the way I made the world. It's the very same word all through the Old Testament. Check it for yourself in the Hebrew. Exactly the same word. Since I wrote that book, I have come to a much stronger position on a six-day creation. I've also come to shorten the earth. I used to think that Usher was probably a little bit naive. Usher, after all, Bishop Usher said that the earth was created 4,004 years before Christ. After studying Kelvin's commentaries, after studying Martin Luther's writings, after studying such commentaries as Barnes Notes, Kyle and Delich, I'm inclined to agree with John Kelvin. God created the earth 3,943 years before Christ. Add to that 1,996 and you have less than 6,000 years ago God made the earth. That's what the Bible tells me. Luther was a, did his math a little different. And Luther said it was 5,955 years ago. Melanchthon said it was 5,958. And Bishop Usher said it was 5,999 years ago. They're all under 6,000. All of them are simply taking the word of God literally. And they're saying, God says that Adam lived so many years and then he begat so-and-so. And Noah lived so many years and he begat so-and-so. Now, some people would say that proves you are a fundamentalist, biblicistic, 
anti-intellectual know-nothing. That's okay. Call me what you want. But that's what God's Word tells me. And if you want to argue, argue with God's Word. If you don't like what God's saying there, study it carefully. And maybe you'll come to the same conclusion that John Calvin did. Maybe you'll come to the same conclusion Martin Luther did. Maybe you'll come to the same conclusion I did. What I'm saying again is only as we study that word, as we recognize that it's God's word, God is truth. God does not lie. He does not twist. He doesn't distort. He's capable of doing things that blow my mind. The more I think about this world, its complexity, its beauty, when, when we go through the forest and see, as Larry was pointing out this afternoon, all the intricacies of those little plants down there in the ground. And when I look at all the marvelous birds and all the kinds of fish in the sea, and I say, what a fantastic God. What it has to do and what we want our kids to do is to stand in awe of such a great God who is capable of doing such kinds of things we can't begin to imagine. When you get to that point, you will burst forth in praise. Then you can truly worship a God who is so great. You just want to sing His praises. Hopefully, that's what happens as you ground your kids in the Word. And then as you teach them, as they get older, as they begin to encounter some of these things, equip them with good questions. Teach them how to question some of these silly kinds of statements and these silly kinds of books. God finally says, this is all foolishness. This is foolishness. Okay, I preached a sermon. Sorry about that. I meant to teach you some about how to do this. Uh, there, I'm sure there are a ton of questions. Uh, it's eight, 18. Our time is supposed to be up, but I'll take one or two questions. If you, Larry? try to synthesize him. You're doing exactly what Ahab was doing in the Old Testament time. He was trying to keep God in focus and at the same time practice all of the religions around him. Yes, young fellow there. That is said. Uh, the comment was that Darwin later on reviewed his theory and he realized he was wrong and became a Christian. I would be cautious about that. Some of those stories, I don't know if they have good basis in fact. You've got to even be careful 
with the stuff that comes in support once in a while. Don't believe everything you read in print. Sometimes you've got to be careful with even that kind of stuff. Sad to say. Yes, Mr. Sheik. Yes, we run that risk, and then we we also you know, and you may be suggesting that I'm doing a little bit of that here. Uh, I don't know if you're implying that, but what I'm saying is, when you look at the world out there, when you look at the Great Basin, and when you look at fossils, there is something there that you cannot deny. But you and I, I think, as Christians, have a far better explanation of that phenomena than they do. I think this explanation of the Great Basin features and saying that is the result of ice dams and ice age, I think is really a sham. I think the flood is a far better explanation. When I look at the fossils 300 feet down in the rock quarries in Chicago and find there all kinds of seashells and fish forms fossilized, the only explanation that makes any sense to me is the flood, the kind of violent upheaval at the time of the flood that's described for us in Genesis 7. To explain that by geological ice ages makes no sense at all to me. So, one more question, <coughs> comment, Bill. Just uh, back up one <coughs> is you have to critically read all of those issues. I mean, whether you're trying to say it backs up your viewpoint or you're trying to contradict it. I, I mean, even in the first slide there, there was a pretty gross math error on their estimation of the uh, how long it would take to drain. You know, they said half the maximum, and that was only been a couple hours if you run the numbers. Um, anyway, and, and, and another point, a lot of people, when they talk, when they're debating evolution with an evolutionist, need to be careful to re-emphasize that your problem with evolution is evolution between species. Because a lot of evidence they cite for evolution is within a species. Yes. And that does take place to some extent. You know, but maintain that it's no evolution, no evidence for it between species. You've got to be careful. And you don't want to make cases, make arguments where you yourself are going to look silly. Right. Uh, you have to be sometimes sly as serpents in your reputation. And you have to be honest. I really think it's important that you be honest about this. Okay, <clears throat> I, we've spent enough time. There is a uh, fire going to be starting over here and there's uh, refreshments and there's swimming. So, 